had the opportunity to stand in a museum and consider paintings. And when you look at paintings, you often see paintings that are of what, what I can call a normal size. And a normal size might go anywhere from here to a little bit bigger than that. But every once in a while, you have a different type of painting. Uh, Picasso's Guernica is an example of a different type of painting. It, it's massive. You can look at it, and you can look at it in a book, and you can look through the pages of the book and read a little bit of a description of it. But I've had the opportunity to stand in Madrid in the museum and look at the Guernica, and the Guernica is, is, is a, a, a 11 feet high, and it's 27 feet wide. So it is a massive work that you're looking at, and it takes time to look at the various parts of the painting and make sense of it as a whole. The Exodus is a story of deliverance that is, if you will, painted large, or it is writ large for us. It's a really, really big story. A whole nation, a multitude of people, is being brought out from amongst another nation. And it's going to be miraculous, and it's going to be glorious as we work through the rest of this story. You can ask Cecil B. DeMille, he will tell you, or I don't know if Cecil B. DeMille is still alive or not, but he would have told you anyway, of how grand the scale is when we're looking at this painting of the book of Exodus. It's big. And yet within this large story of Exodus, we every once in a while get these very small stories. And what we have before us today is a very small story, a part of the story of the Exodus. And the small story that we have here, in a way, helps us to get hold of the thing as a whole. It helps to personalize it a little bit. And I'm going to suggest to you, even at this stage, that sometimes it may be difficult for us to get a sense of the whole of the Exodus and how does that relate to me personally. And yet when you look at a story like this, even if the circumstances in your life are completely different, have nothing to do with putting your baby in a basket and putting your baby on the Nile, nevertheless there is a sense to which we can identify with this experience of deliverance, with a story and the people and the characters that we see revealed before us today. Chapter 1 was big. Chapter 1 was dealing with the increase of the people, with the purposes of God from creation onward being fulfilled, attempted to be thwarted, and then nevertheless being fulfilled with the people continuing to multiply. We have one small part of that story, the two Hebrew midwives. But on the whole, we were looking at something big. And here in chapter 2, we see that all of this great plan of the exodus, of this deliverance that God is going to accomplish, you know the story, at least the broad parts of the story, all of this rests on a boy in a basket on a river. So the whole thing, the big, big thing that God is doing rests on this little incident that we have before us today. So let me begin to look at this chapter this morning for us by considering a wink of providence, a wink of providence. Perhaps you noticed something as I read through our text today, and that is this, there is absolutely no mention of God in it. Not one time is God's name mentioned in this passage. We don't see anyone who is even praying in this passage today. It, it, it reminds us a little bit of the book of Esther, for example, where you don't see God mentioned at all. And God was rarely mentioned at the end of the book of Genesis. He is, 
but he wasn't mentioned all the time at the end of the book of Genesis. And that is true for the section that I just read for us. And so when I refer to this as a wink of providence, you'll understand a little bit what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to say by a wink of providence, a wink in the sense of something negative, something sneaky, something sly. That would be a negative idea of the wink. But rather, I'm trying to refer to a wink as a way of communicating without using words. As a way of saying, perhaps, across a crowded room to your spouse, I'm thinking about you. I love you. You're the one for me, and you can just say it with a wink of your eye. With a wink, you can say something like, watch this. Get, get, get ready for what is about to happen. Or with a wink, you can say, listen, don't worry. It's okay. I've got this. That's what I want you to have in mind. This is exactly what God does in this passage that, is, uh, that we're looking at today. Everything in this passage looks fragile at first glance. When you look at it, you, you, you look at this and say, this is never going to work. This plan that you've come up with here is fraught with danger. There has to be a better way to kick off the exodus of the people. Everything looks fragile, but nothing in this chapter is made of thin and breakable glass. It's made of the silent carbon fiber of the providence of God. Everything looks weak, and nothing is. God winks. He doesn't shout. In this chapter, there's no drying up of the Nile. There's no, and she put the basket onto the Nile, and behold, the rivers separated and the baby sat on the ground. There's no shaking of the earth. There's no voice from God. There's no pillar of fire that appears to protect the baby from all of the surrounding Egyptians. There's no cloak of invisibility that she can drape over top of her baby so that the Egyptians and others won't see, won't hear baby Moses. There's nothing here. No one mentions the name of God, but he's got this. He's got it. He's got the mom and the dad. He's got this baby boy. He's got the boy's sister. And he's got Pharaoh's daughter. And he's got Pharaoh's daughter's handmaids. He's got the whole world in his hands. And he's got this situation in his hands as well. Now we know that Exodus is going to be loud. Nothing is going to be secretive. Very few things are going to be discreet in the book of Exodus. In fact, we might say this, this is as loud, as demonstrative as God gets in all of history, in all of scripture. It won't get louder than Exodus. The earth will shake, pillars of clouds and fires will swirl, mountains will be full of smoke, plagues will come about. There won't be any mistaking what God is doing. At time, rivers will part but not here. All of us, the people of Israel included, and those of us who are the people of God today, need to know something. And that is this. 99.99% of the time, 
God is content and God is pleased to work through things that are incredibly ordinary. Through the ordinariness of his word, through the circumstances of providence, without a lot of fanfare, God is pleased to work out his perfect will. And if we can lay hold of that, if we can lay hold of the solidity of that fact, of this wink of the providence of God, that in the midst of all that's going on in this world, he's going, I got it. may not look like it, but I got it. Then we begin, or we can begin together, a walk of providence. So from a wink of providence to a walk of providence. How do the people in this chapter walk and act? What are the kind of things that we see them doing? Clearly, they're not passive, right? Clearly, they don't take the perspective of saying, well, God's got all this in control, therefore, I don't need to do anything. I'll just sit back and let God handle this situation. Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, reflects back on this passage and tells us this, it was by faith that Moses was hidden by his parents. It was an act of faith that they had. They were active in all of the circumstances that we see unfolding before us. They acted in faith, by faith, with faith to do the things that they did. They acted, to put it in New Testament language, with faith, with hope that God was able to effect this deliverance, and with love, with love for the child. Or if we want to put this back in the language uh, that was reflected on the Hebrew midwives, they acted in the fear of God and not in the fear of men. And they acted. She saw, the mother, saw that he was a fine child. That's the description that we get in verse 2 about Moses. Now, in Hebrew, that is that he was a good child. It's a little bit reflective here. This is a little bit of creation language for us, designed to take us back. She saw he's a good child. And good things were going to come forth from the creation. Now, when the New Testament gets a hold of this and reflects on this in a couple of passages, Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7 and then in Hebrews, both reflecting back on this, this incident, they translate according to the Septuagint, which has that he was a beautiful child. But the sense that we get from all of those together is that he was strong that he was healthy, that when she looked at this boy, she said, no, he's got to be protected. He's got to be kept safe. We can't let him come into harm's way. Now, it's clear that the family not only didn't take the position of saying, God will take care of this and there's nothing we need to do, but they also didn't flaunt their faith in front of the Egyptians. So they didn't kind of throw down the gauntlet and say, all right, Egyptians, it's it's my God against you. And here's the baby, and nothing's going to happen to him because God's got a perfect plan for him. What are you going to do about it? That wasn't the approach that they took in this situation. They didn't go for a direct challenge. Within their circumstances, they acted carefully, prudently, strategically, intentionally. They thought the situation through 
and came up with the plan that we see lived out here before us in this particular situation. Now, this is true with regards to the wink of providence, but it's also true, humanly speaking, there's not a chance, humanly speaking, that that basket was going to sink. None at all. Every caution was taken, every precaution was taken to make sure, humanly speaking, that it was going to be okay. She made the basket, she wove the basket, she covered the basket with, if you will, the equivalent of flex seal. You know that commercial where they, 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 uh, they take the dinghy, the little boat, and they put the screen door in the bottom, and they spray the flex seal on it, and then they put the boat in, and the guy stands in it? Well, that's the equivalent of what is taking place here. She's just not sending off the baby to his death. She's put the bitumen, and she's put the pitch, the tar, all over this thing, so there's no chance that this basket is going down. It wasn't going to get lost. Sister, you go and watch that thing. You go and watch every step that it takes along the way. I'm going to put it here in the reeds. Things don't flow in the reeds. They just kind of get stuck in the reeds if you put it in and amongst those. And so we see great care and great wisdom exercised by them in the preparations that were taken and then we see incredible wisdom exercised by this young girl, by Moses' sister, when she realizes what has taken place, when Pharaoh's daughter has discovered this, and the words that she then brings to Pharaoh's daughter. In, in chapter 1, we read that Pharaoh himself dealt shrewdly with the people of God, with the people of Israel, and he exhorted all of the Egyptians to join him in that. Everybody's got to treat them badly. Everybody's got to try to pull the wool over the eyes of the Israelites. Everybody's got to try to make their lives miserable. Well, what we see in this passage is that this family outfoxed the fox. They outshrewded the shrewd. And when the baby got back, got put back into his mother's arms. And when she nursed this child at her own breasts with a stipend from Pharaoh, I, I know I'm speaking metaphorically here. I'm telling you, God winked. Did you see? I got that. This is exactly, this is exactly what I had in mind. And when, a few years later, Moses' mother takes Moses over to Pharaoh's house and he becomes educated in the Egyptian equivalent of the Ivy League and has a name that's a little bit of a double entendre. It has a meaning in Hebrew and it has a meaning in Egyptian as well, an Egyptian son, child, in Hebrew, drawn out of the water. When all of that takes place, God must have stepped back and winked at the family, or at least smiled, if you want to put it more in biblical language, and said, you see, you see. And friends, I suggest to us even a, a pause of application here at this moment. What are the things in our lives that God is calling us to do, that you know that God has on your plate, and yet for one reason or another, we're avoiding doing them. 
For one reason or another, we find ourselves stuck, afraid, hesitant, waiting for something, and we don't even know what we're waiting for before we get started, before we make a phone call, before we make connection. This passage sets forth for us the opportunity to lay hold of the silent providence of God and to say, in light of, the, in light of my care, in light of the fact that I've got everything in my hand, act. Go ahead and do it. This even harkens back for us, if you will, to the, to the Luke passage with the minas. Don't put the minas in a handkerchief. Do something with them. Act. Engage in business, I think was the word from that parable that we looked at a few weeks ago. But now uh, we've looked at this wink of providence, the walk of providence, and we want to look finally at the aim of providence, the direction, the goal. I couldn't come up with another W for providence that would go along with aim. It sounded too artificial, so work with me. The aim of providence. What is God up to in this portion of this painting? God is delivering the deliverer, period. He is using that which is small to humble and to confound the proud, to do something in their midst that they wouldn't believe if they were told it in advance. He's taking that which was intended for death. The intention of the decree was death. The intention of putting the baby in the Nile was either that eventually it would capsize or perhaps starve because of neglect or maybe one of the crocodiles would get hold of the baby. That which was intended for death, and he's saying, no, out of death I bring life. I sustain. I bring the life. What is before us in these 10 verses is the exodus in miniature. The people of God, like Moses, will be taken from death. They will be put into the Red Sea, which is the Sea of Reeds. They will go into that which is the sea, that which could potentially swallow them up and devour them and they will be delivered, and they will be cared for, and they will be instructed by God. Israel's story is Moses' story, or if you will, this little Moses story right here is about to be writ in the next 39 chapters. The next 39 chapters are just going to take this story and blow it up and say, now watch this on the grand scale. Here's a little version of it for you. You want the little part to get a hold of it? This is the little one. Now I'm going to do this on the big scale. I'm going to take my people through the Reed Sea, and I'm going to be for them a deliverer as well. Israel's story is Moses' story. Moses' story is Noah's story. The word for basket used in this passage is only used in one other place in all of Scripture, Genesis 6 through 9. It's the word for ark, the stuff that is smeared onto this basket to make sure it floats, 
is the same stuff that was smeared onto that other ark to make sure that it floats as well. And when the waters of death threaten to consume all, God says, no, my aim, my intention, the goal of my providence is the deliverance of these people in this ark, the seven plus one, Noah, or the one, as it turns out to be, Moses in this particular circumstance. Israel's story is Moses' story. Moses' story is Noah's story. And all of those stories are connected together because they are part of one great story, which is ultimately Jesus' story. He came into the world through humble circumstances. He was not put into a basket. He was put into a manger. And when he was put into that manger, he was threatened with death by the people who were around him, and he was delivered from that death as God carried the family off for protection down into Egypt. Finally, he would himself succumb to death that he might take his people by the hand in union with him and lead them into life on the other side and bring them into the land which he had promised to his people. This is not, my friends, some fanciful little concoction, little connection that the pastor made up and is so tricky. It's not. It is the progress of what God has been doing throughout history. It is the same story that he tells over and over again, that he unfolds more and more and more. It is the mystery that was concealed, now revealed for you and me in Jesus Christ and our union with him. This is looking at this vast canvas, and you look up close at this vast canvas, this vast painting that stands in front of you, and you look at it and you go, wow, that little place right there, there's a little boy in a basket right there. And you look at the canvas and you say in another spot, wow, there's an ark and seven or eight people are on that ark. And you take another step back and you go, wow, a whole nation is being led out of captivity. And you take another step back from that and you look at the picture and you see that all of the picture is in the shape of a cross. All of the stories come together and all of the stories begging the pardon of Dumas are one for all and all for one. One. One Savior. One deliverer, one ark is going to suffice for all of the people of God, and that is in Jesus Christ. Listen to me carefully. I have to read for us now what is admittedly a complex little section of Scripture from 1 Peter, but you've got to listen to it to understand how this finally connects. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Because when they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the waters, now listen, 
baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Did you hear the connection? Did you hear it? If you get up really close to the painting, there's a boy in a basket, there's Noah in the ark, there's Israel who is coming through first the Red Sea, then through the Jordan into the land. And Peter says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. These are God's redemptive acts. This history is unique. It is God's history of caring for his people. An individual here in the case of Moses and then the nation. But when you get up really close to that painting and you have time to study the whole thing and you look around that painting, what you will find in that painting is you. Because the simple thing that we call baptism takes you right into this story with a direct line of the redeeming work of God, purifying and cleansing for himself a people that he is drawing out in the midst of all of the oppression of this world. You are painted in this picture by the providential hand of the omnipotent artist. You're there, and you are painted there with his blood. And as you look at the picture, and you see you, and you turn around, and you look at Jesus, you get a wink. Gotcha. I've had you all along. All along, I've been painting you into this picture. I love you. You're mine. The circumstances of your life look sometimes as fragile as a boy on the river. You look sometimes like a basket case. You're in an ark made by me, painted by me. In fact, you've been painted there from before the foundation of the world. That's when I painted you into this picture, even though you just happen to be discovering it now. That's the story, brothers and sisters. It's of Moses, it is. It's uniquely of Moses. And because it's of Moses, it's the people of Israel. And because it's the people of Israel, it's of Noah. And because it's of Noah, it's of Jesus. And because it is ultimately of Jesus, it is of you and me as well. And so the call from even a passage like this is to believe to step back and say, this is the God who works in this way throughout history to orchestrate the events so that you're sitting here today. And you say, yeah, I got that. I've got you. It's a call to be assured as we see the providential hand of God protecting here to see it in your life as well. He's going to take you home. He's going to lead you safely to the harbor that he has for you. And ultimately, don't get mistaken, that's not in this life. We're, we're heading to that harbor. We've got to cross. We've got to cross the water to get there. To be assured. And then to walk in the kind of faith that that would yield if we get hold of it. The kind of confidence, quiet,
confidence, wise, prudent confidence that we see exercised by the people here as they walked in faith. His eye is on the sparrow. His eye is on a baby boy floating on the Nile. And I know he watches us. Let's pray.